Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 495, Isn't That Crazy, of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again and we are here to break down everything going on in the worlds of NXT and AEW. Not only that, we seemingly have a bunch of roster change information to discuss not only regarding WWE and AEW, but NXT as well. So a loaded show for you today. It's going to be an interesting format, not what we normally do. However, we have a ton to discuss on today's show. And as always, I'm thrilled to bring it to you. So off the top to kick things off, as usual, allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about defy be sure to leave those five-star ratings for us on apple podcasts and spotify take a little extra time leave a five-star written review on apple because if you do we will read it live right here on the show also don't forget to follow us on twitter at getting overcast for episode drops news analysis highlights all of that good stuff again on twitter at getting overcast lastly remember on this podcast I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for just $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get bonus audio. You will get news posts. And again, your financial contributions will directly support the continuation of getting over. There are a number of things we discuss on these shows. There's a number of news items that have come out over the last couple of weeks that may seem interesting and new to you when they happen Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, many of them we are already covering in our Friday news post every single week, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. As noted, today's show is absolutely loaded. So let me go ahead and break down for you all how we are going to divide this up. We're actually going to kick off with a breakdown of NXT, largely because it had the biggest storyline item of the week. Then between NXT and AEW, we're going to take a somewhat deep dive into a number of professional wrestlers whose contracts are up or coming up soon, along with uh, some analysis of recent reporting about who may be going to WWE and who may be going to AEW. So some really interesting stuff, a loaded show, as mentioned, timestamps are in the episode descriptions. So if you want to jump to one section or another, you can always do that at your leisure. But as always, I hope you are here to listen to this entire episode. So with that said, let's kick things off with NXT, the women's championship, Tiffany Stratton against Becky Lynch. This was the main event of the show at the start of hour two. Lynch reminisced about her time in NXT saying no one thought she was championship material when she was there, but now she's established herself. She's hungrier than ever and she's ready to walk out as champion. Kiana James interrupted talking shit to her. So Becky basically said she'll whip her ass after she wins the title. Lyra Valkyria then approached Lynch before the match and asked her to get the job done. Becky dapped her up, giving her rub. Now from both of WWE's top women, Becky and Rhea Ripley inside of the last month. So clearly they believe in Lyra Valkyria and we've talked about her on this podcast. She has a ridiculously high ceiling. Now, as I said, this was the last match and last segment on NXT, Becky got an insane reception, way bigger 
than the one Seth Rollins got a few weeks ago. And that's not to denigrate Rollins at all, but that is how big of a star Becky Lynch is. Stratton twice escaped disarmor and hit Lynch with a pop-up style Liger bomb. Then she nailed a swanton bomb for the first time. Becky came back with a double underhook slam and armbar, but Tiffy reached the ropes. There were more counters and Stratton hit a running double stomp. Stratton then tried manhandle slam, but got blocked. Then she tried the prettiest moonsault ever, but Becky hopped up onto the ropes with her and hit a falling Russian leg sweep off the middle rope. Great spot. Becky used the guardrail to prevent a powerbomb into the announce table. She then kicked Tiffany onto it and jumped on the, off the barricade. She does that weird like double leg press into someone's stomach where sometimes she like lands on them with her ass instead. But she did that and it actually looked pretty cool. Uh, Lynch rolled Stratton back inside for a flying leg drop and a false finish. Then she put Stratton in disarmor for a rope break. Lynch then got caught with a Liger bomb for a false finish. I'll tell you, it was 3.1. She kicked out really late on that. Regardless, everyone was on their feet. Stratton countered manhandle slam for a near fall. Then she caught Lynch, but she missed prettiest moonsault ever. Becky immediately recovered by running after her, grabbing her in the center of the ring and hitting the manhandle slam to become the NXT Women's Champion for the first time in her career after 14 of what I would call brilliant minutes in the ring. This was a stunner. It felt like they were going to do it, and it felt like they should do it, but I didn't actually think they would do it. This was a terrific moment, and it's appropriate that Becky now stands alongside the other four horsewomen, Asuka and Rhea Ripley, as the sixth women's Grand Slam champion in WWE history. In terms of the match, Stratton still has a long way to go in the ring. She's still way better than she has any right to be given her lack of experience, her lack of training, and her short time in the business. This match over-delivered given the difference in their skill level and the constraints, by the way, of a 14-minute television match. Four stars, A-. minus. The closest comparison here It's actually not Dolph Ziggler beating Braun Breaker, but rather New Day winning the NXT Tag Team titles, which I think was may have been earlier this year before WrestleMania season. This is an extremely smart, creative decision for numerous reasons. First, the obvious, that Becky on NXT should help continue the ratings increase. And guess what? It did. Because on Tuesday night, this despite going against the MTV Video Music Awards, which as anyone who has ever watched MTV Knows, is a huge show. It has declined in importance over the years, but it's nevertheless a huge show that draws massive 1849 demographic ratings. Despite going against that, which aired on more than a handful of different channels, head-to-head, NXT put up 850,000 viewers and a 0.26 demo, its highest total viewership and demo in exactly three years. Now, you know we normally don't talk about ratings here on the podcast, and I would be remiss if I did not mention that Raw on Monday night against the biggest Monday night football game of all time did its lowest rating in history. So not great Monday for WWE. Incredible Tuesday for WWE. The fact that Becky Lynch drew that much for this show. Now, beyond the ratings part of it, this should also give exposure to NXT on Raw, assuming she's still going to be appearing there regularly, semi-regularly carrying the title. One of the reasons this was so surprising to me is the fact that she and Seth Rollins travel with their daughter, Rue, and they have Raw on Mondays. Plus, 
live events sometimes on weekends. So the idea of Lynch going to Orlando, let's say every other Tuesday, it's a shocker to me. But beyond the promotion of NXT and the historic accomplishment, and by the way, she did need to achieve that and get it out of the way at some point. You can't have Becky Lynch not be a Grand Slam champion in WWE when she's the greatest out of, as far as I'm concerned, any women's wrestler in WWE history at this point. But they needed to give her something to really sink her teeth into for this fall period before they begin ramping her up for Rhea Ripley at WrestleMania 40. This also lets WWE really see where Stratton stands right now. I would say she swam here. Not like an Olympic swimmer, mind you, but she did extremely well going up against the top woman in the industry in a really big moment. And by the way, let's not forget how absolutely boring and uninteresting Stratton's reign had been until this point. She was booked weekly. She didn't really have significant feuds. And what has she done with Becky Lynch? She's done the three best promos maybe of her entire career and arguably just had the best match of her career, if not the best, the second best match of her career. I saw some people criticizing this. I don't get those takes at all. Stratton does not need to be protected. There's literally no harm done by Lynch winning the title. Tiffy was elevated more in this loss than she was winning the championship initially. She didn't get squashed. She looked awesome in defeat. It's like the Brian Danielson-Ricky Stark strat match. Did Starks come out of that looking worse? No, he took Brian effing Danielson to his limit. Stratton went toe-to-toe with Becky effing Lynch, the best in the game. How is that a bad thing? The answer is it's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. I loved what they did here. I'm really excited for Lynch to be NXT Women's Champion. I do not think it's going to be a long title reign. There's a lot of people predicting, well, they'll rematch at no mercy, and she's just going to drop it right back to Stratton. Maybe. It's definitely possible. I don't think so, at least not today. Maybe my mind will change when I see what happens on NXT next week and what they do from a feud standpoint. I think it's going to be a couple months that Becky has the NXT women's title, but I do agree she will drop it in decently quick fashion. Um, I don't want to say before Crown Jewel, but I would think almost undoubtedly before the Royal Rumble. I would think before the month of December, she drops it. And look, it may be before the month of November, and maybe it's just a month and a half. Either way, no matter what they do, it's a good decision. Lyra Valkyria fought Dana Brooke. Lyra dominated out of the gate. Dana pulled her off the ropes with her head hitting the top turnbuckle. Dana then crawled over to her, looking like Cheetah from that awful uh, Wonder Woman 1984 movie. Valkyria dodged Brooke's back handspring. She hit a roundhouse kick in the splash for the win. Kalani Jordan convinced Dana to shake Lyra's hand after the bell, so she did. But then Brooke tried to attack her only for Jordan to grab her by the waist and pull her back. So look, Valkyria has now been on the American NXT roster for 10 months. She still doesn't have a good finisher, let alone a named finisher. Obviously, Lyra was the right winner in this match. But for one of the top talents on this brand, they absolutely must do a better job packaging and legitimizing her with some signature moves and finishers. A simple roundhouse kick and a simple splash That's not going to cut it in 2023, especially when you don't even name them or explain why they're special or more impactful. And I say all of this as someone who badly wants her to succeed. I also say it as someone who, as I mentioned earlier, notices WWE giving her the rub from Ripley and Lynch inside of a month. So if that's the type of rub 
you're going to give Lyra Valkyria, you need to build and develop her better. You have to give her signature moves. You have to give her finishers that actually matter. This bullshit she's doing just doesn't make any sense. She's We've seen her in full matches. She's great in the ring, but a roundhouse kick and a splash. I mean, again, it's 2023. What are we doing? Uh, we also, I should mention, saw a random backstage attack of Gigi Dolan taking out Blair Davenport in the same style that Blair took out all the other women on the roster. This was sudden, kind of fire. I didn't really have another place in the show to mention it, so I'm mentioning it here. We had Ilya Dragunov against Wes Lee for the NXT Championship number one contendership. This opened the show, which was a really good idea because put, putting this anywhere near uh, Becky and Tiffany would have almost cannibalized each other from the quality. You want to space them out as much as possible. So this opening the show, very smart. Uh, Dragunov started with a German suplex into the announce table lid. Wes hit some awesome pinpoint kicks and a standing double stomp while Ilya was bent inside out like a table. Looked really cool. Then Wes caught him in a perfect standing Spanish fly. Dragunov came back with a huge knee to the gut while Wes was in a handstand, plus a momentum lariat for a false finish. Ilya caught the cardiac kick midair. Wes double countered into a tornado DDT, then hit a tope con hero over the ring post. Dragunov came back with a superplex and his H-bomb driving forearm. That was a false finish. Wes countered Torpedo Moscow with a jumping knee, but Ilya fell forward into him with a driving forearm from behind. Then he shot the half and got the one, two, three to win in 14 minutes. Carmelo Hayes came out. They talked shit on the ramp and Wes slinked off really angry at himself. I would be utterly shocked if we see a better television match through the end of this week. This was everything you could possibly want other than dealing with the commercial break. 4.25 stars and an A. Some might even go higher. Dragunov was the right winner given his experience level. The fact that Wes had a more recent title match that he lost in cleaner fashion. The question becomes, who wins at no mercy and what happens to the loser? Now, we'll get to that during the ultimate preview in a couple weeks. But even though I said the same thing about Mello and Braun Breaker, which I was clearly wrong about previously, the loser here, it really does feel like should be off to the main roster sooner than later. That kind of makes me believe Melo's going to retain and then Dragunov gets called up because what else is there for him to do? He puts over Melo twice, boom. But I don't know, there's something in me that kind of thinks, hey, maybe they strap up Ilya and have Melo win it back from him January and then have Dragunov debut on the main roster in the Royal Rumble. I could pretty much see something like that happening. Uh, Dominic Mysterio ran into Mello backstage again. Dom gave Mello shit for not being original, making his challengers fight for his title, just like he did last week. Mello said Dom finessed the match by not letting Dragon Lee win. Accurate. Dom shot back that Hayes isn't going to beat Dragunov. This may have been the best like confrontation segment of Dom's career. He was really pointed in his comments. He was believable in his delivery. Mello, strong as usual. Later backstage, Ali said there was nothing he could do about the way he won last week, and clearly he dropped Dom as soon as he realized what happened. Dragon came up saying Ali knows he got screwed. Ali promised Dragon, you will get the first title shot after I beat Dom because that's only fair, and then Dragon said he's not done with him. So this worked extremely well. Also, we still have to believe that Dragon Lee is going to be the one to take the title off Dominic Mysterio. It just seems like they're using Mustafa Ali as this buffer to kind of extend Dominic's run, and that's totally fine. Uh, Trick Williams was backstage a bit depressed about being alone. Mello came in, 
This was after, obviously, the opening segment, well after it. Uh, and Trick offered to have his back next week when he fights Dom because Judgment Day usually rolls deep and Melo could probably use some help. Melo denied him, though, because Trick said he wanted to do his own thing, so he just didn't want him with him because they're trying to be their own people. Williams said he didn't mean it that way. He didn't mean that he would never get his back, but they still agreed we're boys outside the NXT walls, but inside we're competitors and you got to do your own thing. Now, as this conversation was happening, Wes was in the background cleaning out his locker. He dumped a ton of stuff in the garbage. He wheeled his suitcase out. So we're getting champion versus champion next week, which is a really interesting booking decision. Then we had Wes who later walked out of NXT saying, He's keeping to his word when he said that if he didn't get a chance to compete for the title at no mercy, he was going home. I really appreciated the clarification first of the mellow trick relationship and the way they set this up with them having each other's backs while Wes was simultaneously at his lowest point, uh, recently coming off the loss and having no one to talk to. The juxtaposition of those two, you know, people who are in a deep committed friendship and relationship versus a guy who feels like there's no one there for him and everything he tries to do recently isn't going his way. Now, there's obviously a ton of ways this can go for Wes. I'm not against anyone getting a job back, let me be clear. But I truly hope the goal is not like returning to the tag team division with Zachary Wentz and doing MSK. Wesley has been far too good in singles action. And I'm also not sure a main roster call-up is the right move. I do believe this is one of those guys who really should hold the NXT title before he goes up to the main roster. You look at someone like Apollo Crews. That was never the case with him. In fact, he went back to NXT and still didn't win the title. And Crews only did so much up there. Now, there's plenty of examples of people and tag teams not winning titles in NXT and going to the main roster and having great success. Bianca Belair, the Street Profits. There's tons of examples of this. However, it's just with Wes Lee, I think he needs that boost Whereas you kind of knew Bel Air and the Prophets were going to succeed on their own no matter what. So I'm really curious about what they're going to do here. I'm curious about whether we're going to learn more next week. But it is simultaneously funny and annoying that Wes is such an immense drama queen. And he's been this way ever since he lost the North American Championship. I've personally found that to be entertaining. Uh, After a video package recap of Breaker bashing Von Wagner's head in with the steel steps last week, Vic Joseph said Wagner has been diagnosed with a minor skull fracture. There's no timetable for his recovery, but he'll never be the same again. Baron Corbin then came out saying he and the fans generally don't like each other, but it was more important for him to call out Braun. He was all somber and all serious, and he seemed to be intimating almost that he was disappointed in Braun and was angry and was going to challenge him and turn babyface. Instead, he said what Breaker did was freaking awesome. Then they popped each other. And Braun eventually cut Corbin off saying he didn't do it for his approval, but he did it because he wanted to end Vaughn's career. So Corbin gave him a golf clap saying he ended one Olympic gold medalist career at WrestleMania and ended another one before it even started. That was interesting that they actually mentioned Gable Steveson in that manner to suggest his career is now over. I don't have more to talk about regarding that right now. Very interesting, though, the phraseology that he used there. Anyway, this wound up in a challenge at no mercy with Breaker telling Corbin he'll leave the building in an ambulance. They smacked each other across the face three times each, and then they got separated. So there was nothing wrong with this. But for me, it was a massive missed opportunity to turn Corbin babyface. Since he joined NXT, we've been talking about refreshing his gimmick. And they've tweaked his look and his theme and all that type of stuff. 
But that's window dressing. That's hollow. The real way to make a substantive change for Corbin is to turn him face and doing it against a guy who bashed in the head of a sympathetic figure is the move. You can, t- you can have Corbin say, this is professional wrestling. This is a business. We go after people. We talk shit about them. We don't try to end careers. That's a step too far, and I'm standing up to you. And the crowd would rally behind him. And instead, they're like, no, I'm still a piece of shit just like you. That was a great thing you did trying to kill that guy. So like I said, missed opportunity with Corbin and disappointing because of that. The match should be fine at no mercy. Wagner, it seems like they're setting him up for some type of character change or maybe even a visual change given Vic's comment about him never being the same again. I'm kind of curious to see what they do there, but a little worried as well. Chase U was back in session with Thea Hale absent again. Andre Chase and Duke Hudson talked about Hale being in her terrible 20s with Hudson observing that she actually turned off her iPhone location. And I saw this and I know people do this and I guess share their locations with their family and friends. I can't imagine that. I've never turned on my iPhone location ever. Maybe it's just something I hate to be like those younger kids, but maybe it's something like younger people do that as older adults, uh, maybe we don't, but that was, it wasn't foreign to me to see it, but it was, it made me think about the fact that I've never, ever done that. I mean, I've, I've done a pin drop or, and told someone where I am so they can come meet me, but I would never share my live location 24 seven with someone. Very strange. Anyway, uh, we saw Thea out with JC Jane. Guys came over to flirt with them. Thea said it was her birthday over the weekend and they made fun of her. So JC and Thea attacked the dudes. I know this is all cornball stuff, but what guy walks up to a girl and is flirting with her and then not like lightly pokes her, but literally makes fun of her for celebrating her birthday. Women have birthday weeks and months. Like talk about a way not to get action, to go up to two pretty women and make fun of one celebrating her birthday. Anyway, this was all fine. They're going shopping next week. So it seems like Thea will get her makeover as the friendship continues. I would take a guess that that will be better than this moment at the bar was this week for them. But as far as those guys concerned, if you're insulting women when you try to flirt with them, it's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. Yeah, you're not getting over with them, I promise you. Uh, Let's talk about the Global Heritage Invitational. We had a number of matches here. Akira Tozawa of Japan fought Joe Coffey of Scotland. Group B, this was on Level Up. Now, I did miss the first match or matches that were on Level Up. Uh, This would be now two weeks ago. Um, I tried to watch them. They're not available on Peacock, and I guess that there's a period of time that it takes before they get uploaded, so I'm just not going to go over those. But Tozawa, Coffee, Tozawa got some great work in. You could even say he dominated this match. Coffee eventually hit all the best for the Bells, which I maintain is an awful finisher name for the expected win. Nothing more, nothing less than it needed to be. Tyler Bate of England fought Axiom of Spain for Group A. Bate did the helicopter slam, then much later a release suplex. Axiom caught him trying a standing shooting star press with a triangle. Then as Bate tried the rebound lariat, Axiom caught him with a Spanish fly that didn't really get much reaction, even though it was a sick counter. Then Axiom caught him flying again with a rear naked choke. Bate lifted him into a helicopter. Axiom countered into a poison rana. Then Bate countered a suplex into a brain buster. Axiom then took him off the top rope with an avalanche Spanish fly. Axiom countered Tyler Driver 97. Bate countered back into the rebound lariat and hit Tyler Driver 97 for the win. This was outstanding. It didn't really get the crowd going. That was kind of surprising to me. 
maybe because it was a bit slow in parts, but the agency was terrific. There was a great pacing on NXT as well. You had Droganov against Wesley early. You had this in the middle of the show. And then you had Becky Lynch and Tiffany Stratton in the main event. So three big matches all separated basically by, you know, 45 minutes each. I gave this 3.75 stars B+. After the match, Butch cut a promo from a viewing room recounting his rivalry with Bate. Butch said he's back in NXT to prove he's the baddest man in WWE, and no one brings the bruiser out of him more than Bate. Strong promo, definitely worth hyping the match next week, so I'm glad they went out of their way to do that. I still wish this guy was at least called Butch Dunn and used the bruiserweight moniker again. They need to figure out a way to go back to that. And lastly, Nathan Frazier of Jersey against Akira Tozawa of Japan, Group B. Tozawa turned Frazier inside out with a German suplex and hit a great shining wizard. Frazier hopped to the top rope for a superplex into a swinging neckbreaker and got the win. Joe Coffey then cut a promo from the viewing room after the match. Hudson came up saying, when he beats him next week, they'll be in a three-way tie atop the group. Nothing much here, really. Roxanne Perez backstage was telling some of the newbies how important the NXT Women's Breakout Tournament can be. Electra Lopez and Lola Vice came up talking shit, so Perez stood up for herself and got in their faces. Lola challenged, promising to beat Roxy and win the tournament. Not the best segment by any means. They gotta find something better for Roxanne. Creed Brothers fought Malik Blade and Idris Anofe. This was high energy right at the bell. Brutus Creed hit a nice standing moonsault. Julius Creed then hit the signature slam on Idris Anofe before setting up Blade for an assisted Brutus bomb and the quick W. Angel Garza and Umberto Creo, they watched from the crow's nest. Hank and Tank came out. They got attacked by Bronco Nima and Lucian Price. All this was pretty basic. Eddie Thorpe backstage was still pissed off about Dijak. He somehow was able to interrupt on the screen Dijak was behind Thorpe. He was standing at the site of like the Native American ceremonies that Thorpe did, uh, and he was standing in the rain. Dijak took off his belt and started beating a tree with it. Thorpe got angry and stormed out. What the fuck was this? Who is this for? It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Orange Cassidy. Cassidy. I know I played that already, but it's true. Uh, Briggs Jensen and Miles Bourne fought Drew Gulak, Charlie Dempsey, and Damon Kemp. Jensen hit a great spinning heel kick. Bourne saved Fallon Henley from disaster outside, then took Jensen on the canvas and swung him into the post, allowing Kemp to hit a Uranagi-style neckbreaker and get the win. Then Bourne celebrated with the heels, who all dapped him up. This definitely made more sense than the alternative of Bourne randomly helping babyfaces despite training with the heels. Most disappointing was not being able to see him actually wrestle because this was way too short. So that is it for this week in NXT. Before we get into AEW, where of course we're going to talk about Dynamite Collision and Rampage, everything that happened across all of those, what is it, five hours of television. Uh, There are a number of notable news items worth discussing regarding the futures of talent across WWE main roster, NXT, and AEW. And all of this came out in a very short uh, period of time over the last couple of days. So let's start with NXT, where on TV, they had Joe Gacy and Ava standing at the schism tree. Gacy said they stand alone and the tree has withered away with only the two of them left. This is basically how they wrote off the grizzled young veterans, just by saying they're gone without naming them or running an angle or anything like that. I know they lost to the Creed brothers and you know got them back in NXT, but there wasn't anything about them getting excommunicated from schism uh, if they lost. So that's what they did, but they just didn't play that as a storyline. My guess is they just didn't want to feature them on TV 
any further as they were leaving, but still strange given how often they were on TV leading up to this. I thought they had another month on their deals. Some are saying that they're already out, but I think they're probably off TV for the next 30 days or so. As we've stated numerous times here, transitioning GYV into the dyad was an awful idea. The gimmick sucked and not transitioning them out of it when it was clear and obvious that the gimmick sucked. That was maybe an even bigger sin. Sometimes, you know, we might criticize a wrestler for being unhappy with their gimmick or their booking and requesting release. Maybe they're a crybaby. In this case, I don't know that anyone's ever been more justified. These guys should have been a main roster tag team one to two years ago as grizzled young veterans, even if it was a sink or swim scenario. This was a total waste of talent from the moment the change happened. They just massacred these guys. And it's abhorrent to me that schism is still continuing without them. How can they not see this is a failed gimmick? Now, look, we've been giving Shawn Michaels a lot of credit for his creative and his booking in NXT. And he deserves it for another great episode of NXT on Tuesday night. But there is no question this one was a massive miss. And it was a miss from the second it happened. We pointed it out week after week, month after month. Now, what they do, whether they go to AEW or not, that remains to be seen. The roster is massive. I wouldn't be surprised. Zach Gibson can talk like no one's business. We'll find out. If I was them, GYV, I'd go to New Japan. They'd be fantastic there. And then if you succeed in New Japan, you want to come and do AEW, you can do that. Now, last week, obviously, we spoke about Brian Pillman Jr. joining NXT as basically the second ex-AEW wrestler to transition to WWE behind, of course, Cody Rhodes. Obviously, numerous former WWE superstars have made their way to AEW. But I mentioned this rash of reporting over the last few days about wrestlers going in both directions. This felt like a good spot to break down all of those reports and share what we know and what we think. Obviously, the biggest name is Edge. It was reported by PW Insider that he was removed from the WWE roster with certain circles believing he's heading to AEW. They followed that report later by noting Edge had actually just been shifted off of an active roster to a miscellaneous roster. He's on the same roster that like John Cena and Braun Strowman are on, people that are clearly signed to the company but are in a limbo type of situation. Now, what we know publicly is Edge was a part of the newly created SmackDown intro last Friday. Edge himself, in a social media video, said he has a WWE contract waiting in his inbox, but he's unsure of what he wants to do. Now that said, Edge has notably and purposefully lied about future plans in the past, most recently his initial return at the Royal Rumble, however many years ago, four years ago. When Chris Vanini and I initially discussed Edge's future after that match with Sheamus on SmackDown, I think we said something like 50% back to WWE, 45% retirement, 5% AEW. It's now fair to say the AEW odds need to increase here if Mike Johnson hears that some believe he's coming in there. Mike is a great reporter. Now, that said, Edge could also be using AEW interest as a bargaining chip for a larger contract with WWE. And he should do that, just like Randy Orton and others have. The problem is Edge doesn't actually move the needle for WWE. Fans like him. It's great to have him around. It's a nostalgia pop, no doubt. But consider how Vince McMahon and Triple H have booked him. These long, multi-month feuds, 
He doesn't put anyone young over, young or new. It doesn't even have to be like someone who's super young, a 40-year-old, someone younger than him. Now, whose fault is that? Is Edge demanding to win these matches? Are Vince and Triple H refusing to put younger people over him? I can't tell you whose fault it is. I would assume it's McMahon and Paul, but it's not happened. So in that regard, Edge would be a bigger signing for AEW than a re-signing for WWE. Though I would guess if he did sign with AEW, the juice they would get from him would be temporary. And who knows what the talent budget looks like for WWE now with TKO. It could be increased, it could be decreased. It's tough to say. It's just unlike people like Brian Danielson and John Moxley and FTR and Tony Storm and Christian Cage notably, Edge to me feels like an extremely strange fit in AEW. He's more WWE than all of those other people I just named. I could definitely see him doing like a Christian role where it's strong mic work and he wrestles once every couple months. But if you're Edge, why do that on a smaller stage? So you can be in the same locker room as Christian and FTR? So you can wrestle at Wembley Stadium instead of WrestleMania? What I will tell you is this, and it may not even make sense the way I say it. If Edge was to go to AEW, I would say the chances of CM Punk returning to WWE skyrocket. Just from the standpoint of they're going to want to have their own notable return or debut, and CM Punk is really the only person out there that can actually move the needle. Again, as I stated and have stated numerous times, that doesn't mean I would do it. I'm just saying I think the possibility would increase. So let's move off Edge. After Dynamite and Rampage were taped Wednesday night, there was also some reporting done by Fightful about a wrestler who returned to Collision just this Saturday. So before I get to who that is and detail the reporting, let's discuss what happened Saturday night on TV. So on Collision, there was a TBS title match with Chris Statlander. Stat said before the match that she's going to defend her title all the time, just like Orange Cassidy did. So this was promoted as an open challenge with no opponent named. I was thrilled. I figured AEW finally understands what open challenge means and someone's going to answer stat and it's going to be a decent match and fun. Instead, her open challenge opponent was Robin Renegade, who was literally standing in the ring waiting for her to come out. And then stat won with a roll-up bridge, not even her finisher. But then, after the bell, the other Renegade sister attacked stat. So out of nowhere... Jade Cargill made a surprise return and took out both Renegades. She had a nice choke slam, a great look. She got away from all the green bullshit. Jade helped up Stat, only to grab her and hit her with Jaded. Then she grabbed the title and kissed it, and Mark Sterling was also with her. Now, the match was a total waste of time with Stat. Jade's return was really well done. Here are the notes I wrote down after I watched Collision and was planning to share on their own during this show. I had heard there were issues about Jade and her contract, but I guess Tony Khan just paid her. What I'm wondering is the creative decision of putting her immediately back head-to-head with Stat. If Stat wins their match, then Jade immediately takes an L after all that dominance she showed throughout her AEW career. If Jade wins, Stat's reign looks even worse than it already has been. Even crazier, this was booked for Rampage on Friday. So it was good on them for putting a big match on the show, but no promos, no storyline development. The first match was sudden at a pay-per-view, and now we get a rematch without any build on Rampage of all places. 
Like I said, those were my initial thoughts. Now, Rampage was taped after Dynamite. So this match already happened. And from what I understand, it's getting rave reviews. Some are saying it's the best match of Jade's career. I'm not gonna spoil the result, but based on what we're about to talk about, you can probably take a guess who won. And it also puts my immediate thoughts that I just discussed about the booking into clearer context. So at 1.30 a.m. Eastern, Fightful reported, the belief is that Jade is finishing up with AEW and that sources in both companies believe she's going to WWE. Now, I will admit, I heard something about this last week. I did not include it in our news post on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over because I only had a single source and I like to double source reportings like this. What I heard at the time was that Jade was not only seeking money, but obvious avenues in which she can be pushed outside of wrestling, which is something WWE can certainly offer more so than AEW. I mean, you saw what they tried to do, tried and failed to do with her and like Bow Wow of all people last year. So weird. There was also some tweeting later in the morning that Jade may actually stay with AEW. So just like the Edge situation, it's possible this is a bargaining chip type of deal where maybe she's using WWE as leverage for AEW. Here's what I'll say about Jade. She has an incredible look. She has charisma and confidence. She's neither good enough in the ring nor on the mic to be booked as strongly as she was for as long as she was in AEW. In WWE though, I cannot imagine they would start her in NXT, but that's what she needs. She needs time in the performance center. If I was WWE and I was to sign her, I would probably send her down to the performance center for three months working off TV. Rotate the most experienced women in NXT and from the main roster, bring them down, help her train and develop. Then I would have her debut on WWE TV as a Royal Rumble entrant. Perfect timing and situation. After that, you put her on SmackDown where she can also work some of those weekend house shows. And then if she still needs work after all of that, she can take a trip to Orlando. Here and there, she takes a week off, goes to Orlando, isn't on TV, you figure it out. But I would bet after three intensive months in the Performance Center, she'd be ready to go because the base level of talent and experience is strong already. The problem with this plan though is Jade's stature, her status. She models. Her husband is former baseball player Brandon Phillips. He's earned like $100 million in his playing career. So she has the leverage to not do things she doesn't want to do, like maybe go to the Performance Center and live in Orlando for three months or work house shows or whatever the case might be. Those are reasons that she didn't initially go to WWE in the first place. That plus the whole name and likeness deal. She wants to be able to own Jade Cargill. She doesn't want to, you know, have WWE capitalize on that. And WWE may want to give her a different name. The question is, does WWE perhaps see her as a big enough star where they're willing to give her a Brock Lesnar deal or an AJ Styles type of deal because they obviously have the rights to their own names. So this is gonna be extremely interesting to watch as it develops with Jade, with Edge, and obviously there's a number of other people whose contracts you would think will be coming up soon or might be coming up soon. I did a report on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over on a handful of WWE superstars who are currently in the midst of being re-signed. The idea being, of course, that they would agree to those contracts, but 
there still has to be an agreement on both parties, but WWE is attempting, I should say, to re-sign a number of huge names right now. And the list that is on that website right now, that's on our news post, no one that I would think would not re-sign with WWE, but nevertheless, a significant list. And then you have to think there's going to be AEW contracts coming up. And the most notable name I would keep an eye on besides Jade Cargill is Ricky Starks. He is immensely close with Cody Rhodes. He was close a little bit, it seems, with CM Punk. And if Cody is going to perhaps get Jade into WWE, Jade is very close with Cody and Brandy Rhodes. Starks may not be far behind. So those are names I would look out for, at least going in that direction. And then going in the other direction, as of right now, Grizzled Young Veterans and Edge, perhaps. But again, this is all things that we will discuss in greater detail on our future WWE and AEW NXT shows as further news develops. With that said, let's get into AEW for the week. As always, we mix together Dynamite Collision and Rampage, and we break it down by storyline. Brian Danielson made a huge announcement that he promised his daughter once she turned seven he would start finishing up his career. I forgot to mention this was on Collision. Birdie, his daughter, by the way, is six. So that gives him about a year to wrap everything up. Danielson promised that he would not go gently into the night, and anyone who thinks he will doesn't know him. Brian promised to kick in everyone's head who he faces, and he said, if this is my final year, it will be the most epic year of my career. Danielson said he's calling his shots, and the first shot he's calling is fighting Zack Sabre Jr. at Wrestle Dream. Ricky Starks and Big Bill came out with Starks saying everything he's been doing has been to get attention so he can become the face of collision. Starks said he graduated from being hungry to being greedy. Danielson said he wished Starks was patient because he was still talking. Brian put over Ricky's heart and was ready to offer him a spot in the Blackpool Combat Club. He took out a shirt when Bill just attacked Brian. Starks pulled Bill off and then attacked Danielson himself. John Moxley made the save. He ate a boot. Starks then choked Danielson with the t-shirt. Starks then mocked the yes chance. Literally 30 seconds after this ended, Mox Bill got set for an international title match on Dynamite, which it's just hysterical the way they do that. Even funnier was Bill cutting a promo five minutes later where he was fully big cast. I've heard him cut promos not as big cast. This sounded exactly like big cast. So look, the real news here is Brian's announcement. And subsequently, he clarified through the media, he's not exactly gonna be retiring in a year. He's just going to become a special attraction and wrestle randomly wherever he wants, whenever he wants. Maybe a few times a year on TV or pay-per-view, a few random indie shows, etc. He talked about wrestling as long as he physically can do it. So the idea is probably that wrestling, let's say six times a year, will actually extend his career from a physical standpoint. If he does that, who knows? He might wrestle another 20 years. Plus, Brian clearly has a backstage creative role in AEW. And he can presumably do that from home. This goes back to what I said after Brawl Out. At that time, CM Punk should have been fired and Danielson should have been elevated into his role. AEW basically wasted two-thirds of a year with Brian. Basically, everything he did outside of the banger MJF feud in the Iron Man match, he could have been a legitimate needle mover for them as champion and a consistent presence atop the card, yet they just wouldn't pull the trigger on that. And now you have him. He's probably going to be, quote unquote, retiring, stepping back in a significant way after 12 or 15 months. And I doubt they're going to make him champion at some point over this next year, which is what they should have done at some point, even if 
he didn't want them to, it would have made sense having no one's for business reasons. All that said, I have no doubt that Danielson is about to go on a legendary run over this next year. Now, I want to do something special here and welcome longtime listener Michael Gallagher to the show. I've said this on this podcast numerous times. I don't promote it as much as I should, and I really should mention it more often. But if you bring signs about the show, it can be getting over wrestling podcast, uh, something about the Silver King, vintage, whatever the hell you want to put on your signs. But if it's about our podcast and identifiable as about this podcast, if you bring signs to wrestling events and you get them on television or pay-per-view, you earn yourself a guest spot on the show. Michael did that not once, but twice. So not only did I give him a guest spot on the show, I let him choose his own segment and he wanted to talk about Danielson coming off of this announcement. So before we get to the conversation about Danielson, Michael, first of all, thank you. Allow me to officially, and I don't do this ever really with someone on the show, allow me to acknowledge you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. And if you can remind us, uh, what signs did you bring and to which shows did you bring them? Well, the most recent one was the Albany Dynamite. I had my my getting overhead, the original sign that I think I made for full gear last year. Mm -hmm. And then in Albany, I broke out a new one where I, I put Silver King and Vintage. Um, and I was I was the first person there right across the entrance ramp, best right. seat in the house, except you know, the camera, the camera did not love me that night. Mm -hmm. Every time they were showing the signs, they kept cutting to the picture in picture. I remember that if it was a WWE show because of the way they do their entrance cameras, you would have been on every single entrance. We would have seen that sign, but we still saw it a couple times. And you saying full gear was the first time that you brought it out, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Yes. That was the one that was like crystal clear right on television. And the other time it was a little bit tougher to see, but nevertheless, man, two times you brought the, the signs. Do I care that one was recycled? Not that much, but I appreciate it that a new one was created nonetheless. So as noted, we want to get you in here to talk about Brian Danielson. I said, I have no doubt he's about to go on a legendary run. I know I have a number of names that I'm expecting him to fight, but I'm curious first about who you believe he should, or at least you want him to go up against over this next, let's call it 12 to 15 months as he winds down the full-time portion of his career. Absolutely. There's there's three that really come to mind. I think a mixture of what a lot of people want to see and then what I personally want to see. The first one, I was there at the first Grand Slam mm -hmm. when he fought Kenny Omega to that 30-minute draw that just blew everyone's minds there. And I was sitting up in like the 300 section and everyone was just going crazy that match. I think they've been trying to put that rematch together, mm -hmm. but for different injuries, different different reasons, it hasn't worked out yet. I would love to see that again in person if possible, but what are your thoughts on, uh, would, would you want to see that run back? Yeah, I mean, they need to run that back. It's one of those situations where it felt like the 30-minute time limit draw was like a taste, but then you want the meal. Like, you don't just want the amuse-bouche. You want, you want the whole appetizer. You want the whole entree. So I know they just ran Danielson and MJF in the Ironman match, and that was fantastic, but that's what they need. Those two in particular, it can be an Ironman. It can just be a very long match, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, something like that. They need one of those New Japan style all out bangers that is a five star plus type of match. I have to believe they figure out a way to get him with Omega. I don't know when it's going to be because, again, there's this long list of people and I know you have others and I have others, too. 
you got to find a way to get him with Omega. But as Danielson kind of mentioned, and as I, I talked about, just because he retires full time doesn't mean he won't have matches in the future. So maybe what this first year is going to be is all the matches, the first time matches he still wants to have. And then when he comes in, you know, once every three months and has a match for a pay-per-view or for a special event, maybe that's where you don't need much storyline build and it's Omega and it's Mox and it's this person, that person. Absolutely. And I believe I was doing my quick research before this. I'm, I'm ashamed I didn't know off the top of my head. In terms of first time AEW matches, I don't think Danielson and Adam Cole have fought in AEW. I'm pretty sure, unless I'm missing something obvious. I don't believe that is the case. I don't think they fought yet. Do you remember, though, I think they fought on that SmackDown they a did. few years ago when everyone was stuck overseas and there was like an unannounced Adam Cole, Brian, uh, Daniel Bryan match. I loved that. That I, was that, an exceptional that. match. That that was, um, I'm trying to remember what I gave. It was more than four stars. It was four and a half, four and a quarter stars uh, that I gave that match at the time. That was exceptional. And seeing them go again, I don't. I wouldn't say it's on my list, but if it's yours, then I respect that for sure. Absolutely. And the third one, I, I, I think this is maybe the most obvious one, but you have to run back Danielson and Okada, mm-hmm. especially since you were talking about appetizer. I feel like they were setting the stage for like, maybe like a trilogy of matches between the two of them. Um, and j- especially hearing um, Danielson talk about what it meant to him to finish with the broken arm and everything. It kind of lifted my view of the match. Cause mm-hmm. I, I think in the moment I was very want, want kind of at the end of like when, um, when final countdown came on, like I was jumping up and down from the TV, I'm going through the roof and then to see how the ending played out, not knowing he broke his arm. I feel like in the moment I was a little down on the ending, but from his discussion about it after the fact, and from what I think is possible, if they run it back again, I would still love to see that keep going. Yeah, that's definitely was one of the names on my list. You have to do Okada again. The The real deal is the best case scenario would be for Danielson to go over and do the New Japan G1 Climax, which he's always wanted to do. And he probably would have done had it not been for the pandemic. So then you're getting Tetsuya Naito and you're getting Sonata and you're getting all these matches that you would have loved to have seen him have. Tomohiro Ishii, guys like that. But in this run, it just doesn't seem like, especially with him wrapping up his career, Tony Khan's going to say, okay, go spend a month in Japan. That has nothing to do with us. So then you're like, how do you get back to Okada? Maybe literally they just rematch it at Forbidden Door next year. I could definitely see that happening. It would make a lot of sense. Let me kind of go ahead and and drop some names on you. Um, So Sabre obviously is happening already. It's a dream match. That's just the start. Okada, Omega, like you said, I think Will Ospreay needs to happen. And if you want an opponent for Ospreay at next year's All-In, then I don't know who would be better than Danielson in that role. He's already wrestled Kenny Omega numerous times, Ospreay. He doesn't necessarily need to wrestle him at All-In. And it does seem like their trilogy of matches is going to end at Wrestle Kingdom this coming year. So who else in AEW would make sense for Ospreay at least who would make more sense than Danielson. I don't know that it would be anyone. And the other two matches that I have are Darby Allen. I just kind of want to see him get thrown around Darby and bump his ass off for Danielson and Danielson to bump his ass off for Darby. I'm not the biggest Darby fan anymore. I was when AEW started. 
I just think that would make for an interesting match. And lastly, I would absolutely kill for a Ray Phoenix match. I would love to see Brian Danielson and Ray Phoenix. That would absolutely bang. But really the point here, Michael, is Danielson is about to go on an absolute tear of professional wrestling. So more than anything, and he mentioned this uh, in an interview, not on Collision when he made this announcement, but the last couple big matches he's had, he's hurt himself significantly. So the goal for him is to stay healthy more than anything else. You don't want him to put on an absolute banger against, uh, I forgot who the first person we mentioned was, but uh, who was it? Who did you say? I think it was, I'm, I'm blanking on my own list here. It was, it was, it was Adam Cole, uh, Kenny running it back with Kenny. Oh, Omega. Right. I would, ha- yeah. I would hate for him to like go put on this epic banger against Omega and like do something to his hip and then miss nine months. You know what I mean? And then he, it's a time date. It's not a number of match date. It's when his daughter turns seven. So there is a limited time. So more than anything else, he needs to stay healthy. I think it's sad news in some ways that he's giving up his full-time career, but look, it's a positive tilt because we're going to get this run. And again, it's not like he's going to be disappearing from wrestling once he steps away. It's just, he's not going to be a full-time performer anymore. And maybe as a special attraction that ends up actually helping AEW even more than his current role right now. Absolutely. And I I don't think it's going to get back to remember what he, I I think it was around the time when he first joined AEW, there was like a 17 week stretch where he wrestled 15 unique uh, wrestlers on, on like dynamite every single week. And in, in that stretch, I think my favorite match of his was a, not a throwaway, but one of those buy-in matches on YouTube where he fought Minoru Suzuki before a pay-per-view that Tony Khan just made out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to that level of him just wrestling every single week someone new, but I'd much rather see something like that than I feel like before he was injured um, th- this past few months, I feel like with the BCC, it was kind of repetitive opponents a few times as opposed to a different guy every single week. Yeah, and a lot of group storytelling as opposed to individual storytelling, with the exception of the MJF feud, which obviously was fantastic. And uh, even Ricky Starks now, obviously there was no story going into it, but it seems like they've pivoted coming out of it. And I am interested to see the way they kind of book that going forward. Uh, But Michael, look, I really appreciate you joining us and and giving you this opportunity as a thank you from me to you for getting our uh, name out there, our signs on television. And this is a reminder for anyone else out there that you bring signs that are getting over adjacent to professional wrestling shows, primarily WWE and AEW, but I would count certainly Impact and Ring of Honor and anything else, but you get them on screen, you get a spot right here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Before we leave you, any final words, thoughts, anything else you want to say uh, on the way out? Everyone go be a mark for the Silver King and Vintage Chris. Five stars, leave a review, become a getting overhead. It'll be the easiest decision you've ever made in your life. Hey, I appreciate you again as being a longtime listener. Appreciate you for bringing the signs. And you know what? Look, again, we don't really get guests on the show that frequently. So I'll even do this. I'll give you an additional acknowledgement. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. Moving on to Collision, there was an international championship match, John Moxley against Action Andretti. Mox was the heavy favorite, being the show was in Cleveland. Andretti did the worst head stomps I've ever seen, so Mox just flipped him over out of midair for a bulldog choke and the submission victory. Good way for Mox to get a home state pop. Why the hell was Andretti challenging for this title? On Collision, Ray Phoenix fought Angelico. The idea behind this was Phoenix was in his first match back after being decimated by Blackpool Combat Club. He had a tightrope PK on Serpentico, and then one with an over-the-shoulder tombstone pile driver. 
nothing else happened here. On Dynamite, there is an international championship match, Mox against Big Bill. So first he fought AA, now he's fighting BB. Like, is Colt Cabana next? I'm very curious. Uh, Mox bladed at some point because, of course, he did. Bill caught him with a nice boss man slam. Mox came back with hammer elbows only to get pushed off the top rope by Starks into a boot from Bill. Danielson ran down to attack Starks, but Bill caught Mox on the distraction with a choke slam. Mox eventually caught Bill in a standing armbar for the submission victory as Danielson held Starks back on the ring apron. What was weird is the faces both had the upper hand in this moment. But as soon as the bell rang, both of them like released their grips and the heels just immediately attacked both of them. So Claudio Castagnoli runs down uh, and Starks pulled Bill out of the ring. I'm realizing I now called, I guess, BCC faces without, without ever actually them turning face, though I guess Danielson did that for the group by virtue of his speech. Other than Mox being in a full crimson mask for no reason whatsoever, this was a great show opener, a lot of intensity, and it had storyline relevance, which really should not be that high of a bar to pass generally. Mox will be fighting Phoenix for the title next week at Grand Slam, which again makes complete storyline sense based on what happened before All In. That's a match to look forward to, and it might be my top match on the Grand Slam card. We're also getting the expected tag team match coming out of this feud on Collision, that's a positive as well. Roderick Strong's melodramatic video package continued with Strong discussing his friendship with Adam Cole. He said he's not the one who's changed, it's Cole who's changed and continues to let him down. Strong promised to win the tournament and win the AEW title, but said he still won't be happy because he just wants his friend back. It remains impressive to me that Strong is actually delivering pretty solid character work through this gimmick, so kudos to him. Then on Dynamite, uh, Cole approached Strong, worried about his neck. Strong said it was too late and he would beat Joe, break his back, and then beat MJF for the title. So let's talk about all the matches in this Grand Slam World Title Eliminator Tournament and how this all plays out. Right before we do that, we'll talk about an MJF promo, though. So we got a tape promo from MJF alongside Cole in a training room last week. MJF shit all over Strong, calling him a wet blanket, a third wheel, and a bland bitch. Cole kind of turned his head while MJF was crapping on Strong. He also said he's not afraid of Joe and will kick the shit out of whoever wins the tournament. MJF specifically promised that he would choke out Joe if they fight. Then he did the entire Steiner math promo in pretty awesome fashion. He didn't have the same oddities to the speech delivery that Scott Steiner did, such as saying drastic instead of drastically and screwing up words and phraseology. That's what makes Steiner math so great, getting mixed up in it. But... MJF remixed it to make it make sense for his storyline, and he absolutely nailed it. It was great. I'd give it an 8.5 out of 10 on a grading scale. The only way to get to 10 out of 10 is to do like a perfect recreation. So again, the Grand Slam World Title Eliminator Tournament. By the way, Eliminator, Tournament, those are basically two synonymous words in this case. So what are we doing here? On Rampage, Penta L0M fought Jay Lethal. Penta countered Lethal Injection with a dropkick to the gut. Lethal then fully ripped off his mask, but Alex stopped him from grabbing uh, Jeff Jarrett's guitar. Penta got the mask back on and countered Lethal Injection with a backstabber. Then he snapped Lethal's arm and hit Fear Factor for the win. Very fun match. The mask removal stuff, it's kind of an eye roll, but the way they did it here with one quick motion made it kind of surprising, and I thought that hit pretty nice. On Rampage, Jeff Hardy fought Samoa Joe. Hardy hit Whisper in the Wind along with most of his signatures. He got up to finish him only for Joe to lock in Coquina Clutch for the sudden knockout victory. Solid main event, not as good as Penta and Lethal. 
Interesting is that AEW ran a semifinal between these two one night later. It always felt like the tournament was a total rush job, but based on the scheduling, it was kind of undeniable. On Collision, Darby Allen fought Roderick Strong. Darby's entrance music hit, and he was, for some reason, still in the parking lot riding his skateboard. Luchasaurus grabbed him in a chokehold right off the board and put him in a torture rack while Christian Cage talked shit, saying he'll never be champion in AEW as long as he's around. Then Luchasaurus lawn darted him into the garage door, just like Kevin Nash did Rey Mysterio. Darby hobbled down with Nick Wayne, encouraging him to do the match. Strong mostly had the upper hand, as one would expect. Allen reached the ropes on an STF, but Strong caught him on the top rope during a coffin drop. This was maybe the best spot individually in wrestling this week. So Strong catches him on the ropes. He does a uranagi on Darby into the top turnbuckle. Darby tumbles backwards off the turnbuckle, bangs his head off the ring apron. Awesome visual. Allen then did a standing coffin drop outside. Then AR Fox came down to even the sides with Kingdom. But instead, he argued with Wayne, strong car Allen, flipping with a Claymore. Darby countered the backbreaker into an inverted DDT. Everyone fought at ringside with Fox accidentally nailing Wayne while basically doing Guile's sonic boom, like from the Street Fighter video game. Pretty cool. Uh, Strong then got knees up on a coffin drop and hit end of heartache for the win. Wayne and Fox got into it after. Excellent match. Four stars A minus. Probably would have been higher without so much outside shit and distraction. Plus, the unlikelihood of Darby taking that much punishment after getting his ass kicked before the match and then winning, that kind of set me off. But they already had the distraction finish in place. They didn't need to do both just to protect Darby. But it was easily the best match on Collision, the best match of the last week in AEW as well. Strong was obviously the right winner for storyline purposes. All of this worked. On Collision, Penta fought Joe. This was the main event. Penta hit a nice backbreaker. Joe came back with a power slam, inverted atomic drop, and sent on. You know, wrestlers don't do atomic drops enough these days, and I love the inverted one especially. Uh, Joe did the hysterical walk away to avoid Penta on a tope cone hero. He went right into a table. Awesome spot. Joe then blocked Penta's finisher, immediately countering into Coquina Clutch for the submission victory. Really fun match, 3.5 stars and a B. On Dynamite, Strong fought Joe. This was in the finals, and it was the main event of the show. Joe hit the Uranagi counter out of the corner. Love that move. Strong got distractions when Joe tried Muscle Buster, and he hit an Olympic slam plus a Claymore. Joe then took Strong out of midair with a clothesline and locked in the Coquina Clutch for the submission victory. Joe then talked some shit to MJF on the mic and left. Now, forget the order in which I predicted these matches, because I certainly don't remember. But Joe, as someone who just lost the match to CM Punk and has less of a long-term story with MJF, he made a lot more sense to be the Grand Slam match. I presume Strong is going to weasel his way into getting a title shot at Wrestle Dream, though I guess that card is strong enough. Maybe MJF could actually be left off of it. I don't know. But this was solid bell to bell, some nice spots, and like I said, the right winner. Now, after the bell, Strong was 100% fine. He was arguing with the kingdom a little bit, not putting on the neck brace. Cole came out for some reason, and Strong immediately planted himself on the canvas, grabs his neck, starts screaming at him, and it's blatantly obvious how fake it is. Trainers ran out to brace and board him up as Cole stood there looking concerned. Kingdom played along, and they tried to prevent Cole from helping in any major way. Joe then ran back out and choked out Cole on the stage, basically as another way of getting to MJF. So starting with Joe, this guy's the fucking best. Anytime he has a chance to eat and be like a humongous piece of shit as a heel, 
He knocks it out of the park. Beyond him, the final bit made zero sense to me. Cole saw Strong blatantly faking the neck injury right in front of him. He saw him be 100% fine. And then all of a sudden hits the canvas screaming for no reason whatsoever. I know it was supposed to be obvious to us as viewers. That's a positive. You want it to be obvious and funny where we roll our eyes. But Cole shouldn't know it's fake. Yet it was right in front of his face how fake it was. So what is he, a moron? Like, it really took me out of the entire thing how poorly this was executed. Luckily, Joe saved it at the end with that awesome chokeout, but I didn't really like the way this progressed at the end of the match. On Rampage, the Young Bucks fought Daddy Magic and Cool Hand. Zero reason for this match to happen. The Bucks at BTE trigger on Daddy Magic for the win. I legitimately have nothing else here. On Dynamite, Allen and Wayne fought Daddy Magic and Cool Hand. Christian and Luchasaurus entered at the bell and sat on commentary. Darby hit coffin drop inside as Wayne did a moonsault outside simultaneously, both off the same turnbuckle for the win. Christian, after the bell, talked about Nick's mom to minimal reactions. It's clearly dying down, the effectiveness of the mom and dad stuff. He also got a sports-based cheap heat deal before challenging Darby and Sting to a match against himself and Luchasaurus. The excuse here is that he didn't take the fall at all in. Maybe so, but do we really need to see this again? By the way, this will be Sting's 20th match in AEW. His record is 19-0. It would probably be nice if he took the fall for somebody at some point, somewhere before he retires. On Rampage, Sammy Guevara came out on stage to confront Chris Jericho, who was on commentary. They each agreed they wanted to punch the other in the face. Jericho suggested, let's just have a match. We can get out our aggression, and then we can continue vying for the tag team titles. Sammy agreed, and they decided to do it at Grand Slam. Then they shook hands and hugged. I liked this a lot for the uniqueness. Not that tag team partners or stablemates haven't fought before, but the manner in which they accomplished it was interesting. It probably would have hit a little bit better as a more natural backstage segment, and it didn't really have that much heat to it, but I liked the booking. The good thing is they followed it up on Dynamite. So Les X Gods came out together to a basically clips package of their friendship. Jericho put over Guevara in a heartfelt manner. Sammy talked about idolizing Chris, and then he thanked him for changing his life and making AEW possible. Then he said he didn't come to AEW to always be in Jericho's shadow, so he needs to beat him so he can enter the next phase of his career. Jericho reiterated he wants Guevara to reach the next level, but in order to do it, he's going to have to beat him and be better than he's ever been in order to do it. They shook hands. Then they did the pull-in stare down. Jericho said he'll give him the match of his life by beating the living hell out of him. Sammy agreed. This ebbed and flowed from meh to great, up and down. Overall, as I just said, the storyline works great. The new era of wrestling across WWE and AEW where like friendship prevails over typical wrestling bullshit, it's refreshing from a storyline perspective. It's a bit strange they're doing this at the same time as MJF and Cole, but it is a different story that they're telling, mostly due to their prior relationship. This hit extremely well for me. It ended strong. More than anything, it built anticipation to the match itself. That's what was missing from the Rampage segment. They delivered it on Dynamite. That's a positive. On Collision, Eddie Kingston and Claudio Castanoli sat down with Tony Schiavone. Claudio said he doesn't even know why Eddie is angry at him. Kingston explained Claudio left the independence to go to WWE without going out on his back for him. Eddie offered a title versus title match. His NJPW Strong openweight title against Claudio's Ring of Honor title. Claudio agreed as long as he gets a handshake of respect. 
Then on Dynamite, there was a moment where Kingston got to laugh in Claudio's face, taunting him, saying one more week. This was pretty good. Kingston completely carried it. It definitely seems like they're going to put the Ring of Honor title on Eddie at Grand Slam. That will be the right decision. The pop should be enormous for him. On Rampage, Britt Baker, Hikaru Shida, and Sky Blue fought Taya Valkyrie, Anna Jay, and the Bunny. It was at the start of this match I realized Anna, Bunny, and Penelope Ford, who accompanied them ringside, they're almost indistinguishable from one another. After a near fall, Baker transitioned Bunny into the lockjaw for the submission. No one cared about anything other than doing the DMD chant. Sheeta was angry and gave Baker a sarcastic fist bump after the bell. This gave me major Charlotte Flair vibes with Baker. Obviously, she doesn't compare in the ring or anything, but just the feeling I got from like the post-match and really just her on screen in general. On Dynamite, Baker, Sheeta, Tony Storm, and Nyla Rose all fought in a fatal four-way eliminator match. Again, this isn't an eliminator match. It's four people. If it was going to be an elimination match, that would have been great. I would have loved for an elimination match between these four. It's a number one contendership. That's it. You're not, you can't eliminate three people. It, it just doesn't really make any sense. Backstage at Collision, Soraya admitted that there was something wrong with Storm mentally before just putting herself over. Storm played up her gimmick a little bit at the bell. Sheeta basically took out Rose with a katana. Baker then stomped Sheeta's back in what had to be a botched spot with Storm rolling up Baker for the win. Tony celebrated wildly afterward. Commentary completely missed a call on Sheeta seemingly choking Baker out after the bell for 15 seconds. Eventually, they got around to saying, hey, they have a problem here, but like she was choking her out. Uh, we saw Soraya and Ruby Soho again backstage. This time, they were only wearing black, and Ruby even got rid of the green in her hair. Soraya said that Tony lost everything to her and also lost her mind. She promised Storm would also lose at Grand Slam. Tony was obviously the right winner. She's deserving of a rematch for the title. It feels like they may just flip this right back to her with Soraya simply getting over at all in because they were in London. Storm is more over now with this new gimmick than she's ever been. So it really would be smart to put it back on her. Soraya has, by the way, done nothing with the title since winning it. And sure as shit, isn't about to elevate it in any meaningful way if she keeps it. It was also nice to see Baker Sheeta develop into a singles feud over the last couple of weeks. Britt has almost never been involved in a legitimate feud not involving or surrounding a title. This one, it seems, doesn't. I like that they can maybe take this for a couple weeks on TV, maybe even do a main event match out of it on, I guess it would be Dynamite if they did it. On Dynamite, Don Callis came out with Kanosuke Takeshka unveiling his new nickname is the Alpha because he's more than just an ace. He also mentioned how Jericho has used that nickname, which was good because I was going to call him out on that. Callis said they weren't done breaking Kenny Omega and unveiled the new painting, which showed Kota Ibushi as their next target. Callis promised to basically dismember and destroy Ibushi while spilling all his blood with Omega at home watching helplessly. There was a surprising lack of pop for the Ibushi announcement, particularly because Takeshka Ibushi is going to be a banger. And you'd think fans would care about that. But maybe it's just the general AEW audience doesn't care much for him anymore. I don't know. This segment really lacked punch. Callus is great on the mic, but he's starting to bore me. I found myself losing interest as this went on. What I appreciated, though, unlike that Bobby Lashley and Street Profits segment a few weeks ago, there was a purpose to this. They announced a nickname. They announced a match. They weren't just out there talking shit. Daniel Garcia was later cutting a promo backstage, proud of himself for going viral four times when Callus interrupted, seemingly trying to recruit him into his still one-member Callus family. Garcia shushed him then danced up on him. Callus thought it was money and pursued him further. Alrighty. 
On Dynamite, Hangman Page fought Brian Cage. Hangman was at the finish cage when Swerve Strickland entered to distract him. Cage then German suplexed him over the ropes inside, which was a great spot. Cage caught Hangman and did bicep curls only to eat a crucifix bomb. Hangman hit a moonsault outside and a flying crossbody inside. Cage countered Buckshot Lariat, but Page countered Cage's finisher into a small package before hitting Deadeye for the one, two, three. Hangman started cutting a promo after the bell, so Swerve pulled like a microphone, I think it was out of his ass. He got some cheap heat. Then he obviously made the challenge for a wrestle dream. It's in his home state of Washington. While distracted in the promo battle, Hangman got attacked by Cage. The Young Bucks ran down, did a double super kick. Then they caught Prince Nana with one after he danced for a good 30 to 60 seconds facing the hard cam. That was really funny. Huge improvement from the normal AEW booking where the package would have been the finish just because Cage is a big dude and needs to get protected. Not only did Hangman win in standard fashion, it was with a signature rather than his finisher. It did go a bit long for my taste, but it definitely hit. There were some fun individual spots. The promo battle was notably lackluster, especially compared to last week. Again, I loved what they did last week. This week, they tried to like make it seem like they had some deep-seated feud. It's only been seven days long. And the Bucks randomly saving Hangman when they're not actually quote-unquote together. I thought that was a little bit strange. On Collision, FTR backstage talked about now having defeated everyone, including the Bucks. Dax Harwood proposed a tag team challenge where they would put the titles on the line against anyone who wanted to prove themselves to FTR or AEW. I presume that's going to be tag teams from outside AEW, which goes to show what we've talked about with AEW's tag team division recently. One of the best ever constructed is now thin as shit. Also, this is basically just an open challenge format, which as you heard earlier, is basically what Chris Statlander is already doing. We'll see who answers these challenges and how worthwhile this is. On Collision, CJ Perry, the former Lana from WWE, she got a promo package where she talked to Miro through the screen. She said she was the first casualty of his redemption, and she returned it all out because she thought he'd be pleased to see her. CJ said he can continue down this path, but she's going to go down her own path, and she's torn about it. She said she spent two years wondering whether she has what it takes. CJ said she was once the coldest manager in wrestling, and she wants to do it again. I could have sworn she was talking about wrestling. But this was terrific from CJ. Great acting and storytelling from her. We'll see how it manifests. It seems decently thin, but we'll see what happens. On Collision, Powerhouse Hobbs cut a promo package about taking the Redeemer to the limit. He said despite losing, he was the real winner and the chapter remains unwritten. Fine speech. I'll I'll see what they do with this guy next before I get excited about anything. Every time it's lackluster. On Collision, Keith Lee backstage confirmed he will be wrestling solo on Collision. He said he is the Collision and told everyone to run, presumably in a nod to Bray Wyatt, which was sweet. This might have been Keith's best promo in AEW, despite it being really short and him saying pretty much nothing. It seems like he's going to be a collision-exclusive talent. Just like I said with Hobbs, I'll wait to get excited about him until I see AEW actually use him well. I would not be surprised if they run back Lee Hobbs to take advantage of all the meat stuff that was so popular at All Out. On Dynamite, Hook was about to be interviewed when Orange Cassidy interrupted, confused why he was mad given he's healthy and has a title. Hook called him a great champion. They fist bumped and that was it. Orange also said he was tired. Commentary called this an interesting development. What was the development? Hook got a video package on Collision and this on Dynamite. He said seven total words. No storyline, no new opponent. It feels like the guy is just not developing at all. There really are not many AEW talents who I would suggest could truly benefit from the WWE Performance Center. 
Most are well into their professional careers. They're getting spotlighted. Everything's going fine. Hook is absolutely one of those guys who would thrive in the PC setting, or at least needs to experience that. Because right now, he's the same dude he was when he arrived. He's the same wrestler he was when he arrived. There's no change in personality. There's no change in promo. There's no change in in-ring. It's just mediocre across the board. He has a good theme. That's really it. On Collision, Bullet Club Gold fought Gravity, Aerostar, and Dios del Inframundo. The best part of this was the Bullet Club entrance where Cardblade stood in for Jay White. He had to miss the show for a personal reason. The guns hit 310 to Yuma on one of the guys. Then Juice Robinson tagged in for a leg lariat and his flat DDT. Andrade El Idolo randomly watched backstage. Again, no storyline implications, just a waste of time. On Rampage, there was another promo package from Mike Santana. Pretty much repeated everything he said last week. He also got into a big Twitter spat with Ortiz during the week. Most thought it was storyline. Apparently it's not. I'm finding it really hard to be particularly interested in him. And then on Collision, there was another promo package for The Righteous. It was a bunch of gibberish plus a close-up of someone's tongue wagging. Not sure really what I was supposed to take from this. I guess I'll see what they'll do in the ring and I'll decide whether I like them or not from there. So that was it from AEW television this week. The only thing left to cover, and you know, normally we're not here on the podcast to talk about ratings. We're not here to talk about attendance figures or all any of that type of stuff. But we spent a decent amount of time talking about the AEW all-in attendance and how it was indeed the largest, most attended wrestling event ever, um, beating the WWE record. Well, there was an interesting development here. Uh, about a day ago from the time we taped this podcast, so on Wednesday, the official turnstile count was released by the local government in London. And the number was 72,000. 265. Now you need to remember AEW announced 81,035 as their attendance. This is 9,000 shy of that. Number one, you know, most important, I guess, to the discussion for historic reasons, that gives WWE back the record for most attended event. Now, AEW can still claim more tickets sold for this event than that one, but if 9,000 tickets went unused, that's not attendance. Uh, Tony Khan, you have to remember, after All In, he said in the media scrum, you know, All In, if we just kind of included, you know, concession workers and security and all this, it's about 90,000 people in the building. Well, no, it's not, because again, it's 9,000 less than that, just based on the turnstiles. So it's obviously an interesting development. It's mightily impressive either way. Again, AEW, been around, what, three years, four years, they put 72,000 265 people in a stadium, in Wembley Stadium, of all places, for All In. But we do need to kind of contextualize this with the way AEW has talked about it. They promoted it over and over again, ad nauseum, as the most attended wrestling event of all time. Chris Jericho cut a promo about it. They made a t-shirt about it. It literally says 81035, and they're selling it. Will Ospreay, I think, had the number tattooed on his arm. I mean, we have to be honest here. This is a really funny development in terms of the whole attendance war. I mean, you had people counting, looking at pictures of, uh, of WrestleMania, trying to count every single individual in the crowd to see how accurate WWE's number is. And then this comes out and there's people saying, oh, yeah, it looks like it's less. And like, that's it. They're not criticizing it. You have to remember, Tony Khan went out of his way to say, we're going to give you a real number, unlike WWE, and then he inflated it by 9,000. 
Let me repeat. This is still a massive success. 72,000 plus people is ridiculous, but it's so hilarious that this is the case that they actually overcounted by 9,000 or they I should, I should say they overpromoted by 9,000 in the context of the stupid attendance discussions that for what, three, four months dominated the IWC. They were touting this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And ultimately we wind up finding out it's under 73,000 people that attended. Didn't come close to breaking WWE's record again in terms of actual attendance in a venue. So wrapping up the podcast today, we just had to mention it at some point. We had fun with it a little bit uh, during the instant analysis to AEW All In, but it was good natured because we were actually proud of them. We talked about how crazy of an accomplishment it is. We put them over so much. And here we sit weeks later, it's under 73,000. You just have to appreciate like the irony and the hysteria surrounding the entire thing. That's pretty much what I was getting at. Folks, look, I'm exhausted. You can probably tell my voice is going. That is it for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back Tuesday with our next WWE episode and then next Thursday for our AEW and NXT episode. You can also tell, given this is episode 495, we are quickly coming up on episode 500, trying to put some awesome plans in place. It's gonna be the week where we do ultimate previews for NXT No Mercy and AEW Wrestle Dream. So it's gonna be very difficult to fit in an additional episode, but I'm gonna try my damnedest. I promise you, I want number 500 on the dot to be special. I'm doing what I can to make that happen. I appreciate you all listening to today's show. On the way out, reminders as usual. First, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take extra time, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up, you will get bonus audio, news posts, and much more. Lastly, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Thanks once again to longtime listener Michael Gallagher for putting up those signs and being part of today's show. At this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with three final words. Bye for now.